Arlene Live returns to the airwaves as she rejoins the KUAM Podcast Network. She is a seasoned journalist and broadcast talk show host known for her intriguing conversation with historians, linguists, anthropologists, archaeologists, cultural practitioners, and artisans. Arlene embraces the cultural phenomena of the Western Pacific because of her Pacific Island roots with her family history in Palau, Yap, Saipan, and Tinian. She has always promoted One Micronesia, and you're invited along on this continuing discovery of what connects island people. There's never a dull moment with Arlene, a skilled ethnographer, oral historian, and documentarian. Join Arlene Live right here on the KUAM Podcast Network and on all your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Google Podcast, and Micronesia Publishing on YouTube. From the KUAM Podcast Network, this is Arlene Live with conversation on island issues facing Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, the rest of Micronesia, and the Western Pacific. Now, here's Arlene. Hi day, everyone. This is Arlene live again, and my guest in studio today is Dr. Thomas Stoltz. And I have met him in person once before, very briefly, but long enough to be able to appreciate his interest and his continuing work in the Chamorro language. He's a linguist. He is 64 years old, which makes me a few years older than you, Thomas. Uh, oh. So I can call you Thomas. I am your senior. <laughs> How's yes. that? <laughs> okay, so. Uh, Dr. Thomas Stoltz is 64 years old and has been a full professor, the chair of general linguistics at the University of Bremen in Germany for the past 24 years. His main areas of interest comprise language topology, language contact, aerial linguistics, language change, and the descriptive linguistics of a variety of individual languages, such as classical Aztec, Maltese, Welsh, and not the least, Chamorro. He is currently the president of the International Association of Maltese Linguistics and the director of the Maltese Center at his university. He is editor-in-chief of the journal Language Topology and Universities, Universals, rather, and the book series Studia Topologica, as well mm-hmm. as co-editor of the book series Colonial and Postcolonial linguistics, which really brings you right into our area. Over the last year, he has published extensively on the wide range of linguistic topics. He is author and co-author of 22 books and 240 scholarly articles. In some of these, he addresses issues related to the grammar of Chamorro. He visited the Marianas in 2007, 2011, and most recently, 2018. He has integrated a project aiming at the recovery of lost place names of the Ghani Islands. And that actually threw me into your path once more, because you're doing that work with the Humanities Council up at the Northern Marianas. We want to be able to continue a better understanding of not only our people, of where we might have come from, when that might have happened, but also the linguistic development of our people, especially because of the colonial impact that have uh, occurred. So I am really interested to get your take 
on all this, but let us start first, please, by telling us just how you became interested in linguistics. In linguistics? Oh, yes. yeah, that goes back to my uh, uh, early school days, in a way. I invented a language of my own when I was a uh, kid in primary school because I was bored with everything, in a way, so I needed a hobby horse. <laughs> and I came across some texts in one of our uh, school books, uh, uh, which uh, documented an older phase of the German language. So I thought, oh, language um, seems to be has, uh, to change over time and you can uh, somehow juggle with uh, the words and parts of sentences and so on. And then uh, I started to invent a language of my own. It was more like German, of course, <laughs> in a way, because I didn't know any other languages at that time. And But uh, um, at the age of eight or nine, I started to get interested in uh, languages. Uh, first only uh, for um, a better understanding of the history of the people who spoke these languages. And then uh, later on, it uh, de developed independently of the historical part of the story. Uh, so uh, during secondary education, uh, I really uh, decided to become a professor of linguistics. So that was <laughs> when, I, when I learned about the possibility there was this Benjamin Lee Wolf's theory of relativism, linguistic relativism. Uh, I, I found this book somewhere in a box and uh, had a look at it. And I said, oh, people think differently uh, from uh, Europeans when they speak uh, languages uh, which have a different structure from German, English, and so on. And that was really, uh, that uh, really caught me. And uh, from, um, uh, let's say, the age of 17, Onwards, I was convinced that I will become uh, uh, a linguist uh, without knowing what that meant <laughs> at that right, time, of right. course. Uh, and so it was decided already before uh, I took my uh, uh, A-levels uh, at, at school. So, of course, so it was predestined in a way uh, uh, to go for linguistics. And I, I never really uh, uh, get uh, second thoughts about it, <laughs> uh, about my choice. Uh, so it was uh, uh, decided really uh, early on in my uh, uh, life. When you are seven and eight years old, it is not. It is very difficult to be bored. What kind of a kid were you? I don't remember exactly because I didn't keep. Uh, I haven't kept a, a diary uh, of that time, but uh, I. Uh, Let's say that at school it was uh, always the same, the routine, every day uh, the same kind of drill or whatever uh, it was at that time. Of course, I was uh, out on the playground playing with the other kids around, but then I had a lot of spare time on my hands and mm. there weren't any... I, I'm uh, from a, a working-class background, so there weren't any books available at home. And I went to the library, of course, uh, to start reading and uh, uh, to have something to do during my leisure hours. And it was, let's say... Hmm, like a kid in the candy store? Yes, 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 of course. There were so many books. At, the, at first, I couldn't really imagine. When, when I started to go to the library regularly, I, I didn't have an idea uh, at the beginning how many books there were around. At first, I, I thought there were about, uh, perhaps two dozen <laughs> books <laughs> worldwide. 
and then of course I discovered no, there is a, a, a plethora of books, perhaps millions, yes. and also th there is a lot to learn about the world. Uh, at, at that time, I had an interest in history, the past, mm -hmm. the distant past, and so on. But that changed. Now I'm not so much interested anymore in the distant past uh, alone. Let's say uh, also the present uh, uh, and the future. Are interested as uh, interesting as well well that's amazing because most eight-year-olds unless you're a reader and i'm very proud to say that all my children and my grandchildren are readers as a matter of fact i took a picture of my 10 year old grandson who was in bed with me the other day and while we were talking i called him over and he was reading a book and i, <laughs> I don't care what they read thomas i just tell the children i you should always make time for sustained reading I don't care what it right. is. Pick something up, read it for half an hour, an hour, because as you develop your reading interest, then you can pick whatever topic you're interested in. So I applaud that, that at a very young age, especially coming from a background where you didn't have a library at home, did you mm -hmm. picked up the interest to go to the library. Um, yeah. I was just at the library yesterday and the new director would love to have more children come to the library. But most mm -hmm. often it's the mother that is interested in introducing children. I often see mothers with their young at the library. So maybe there's a Thomas that we can have yeah. one day. No, it was the same situation uh, uh, at my home. My father wasn't interested in reading at all. Uh, so he even had difficulties in uh, reading and writing. Whereas my mother uh, uh, at least had some kind of interest in, in reading and she told me, if you want to have books, they are much too expensive to buy them. So go to the library. <laughs> that was it. Bless her heart. And look at you today. Not only mm, yeah. are you a linguist, but you have all those books behind you. And I'm sure that that's one of the fascinations. I know it is with me. Yeah, I'm not yeah. I'm not involved in the linguistic part of it, which is why it fascinates me to speak to you all the time. I enjoyed our first interview and now I wanted to follow through um, yeah. these many years later, what you've done with the Chamorro language. Could you tell us why you were even interested or what introduced you to the Chamorro language? Yeah, it, it's, uh, let's say, uh, uh, it was a little detour to Chamorro. Uh, I was interested in uh, language contact phenomena. So what can happen to languages when they are in contact with each other? There is a prestige language that influences another language. Uh, a lot of things happen. Uh, it's interesting for uh, linguistic theory and so on. I won't go too deeply into that. Right. Uh, and um, at that time, uh, I was uh, studying Mesoamerican languages mostly, and many of the Mexico, uh, for instance, uh, have been under heavy influence, massive borrowing from Spanish. So Spanish uh, played a major role in shaping the grammar and lexicon of these languages. Uh, as they are uh, today. And what uh, I uh, saw at that time was that languages uh, who, uh, which belong to different families and are spoken at different places in Mexico and all over the place in Mesoamerica and also South America, borrow the same elements from Spanish, uh, no matter to, to what family they belong. Wow. Then I observed the same in the, some of the languages of the Philippines, Tagalog and so on. And I came across uh, a dictionary of the Chamorro language, and I said, oh, 
there are hundreds of Spanish words in the language. It's, it's an interesting language for me. I never heard about Chamorro before that. I heard about it, but I uh, uh, didn't really go into it. But then I thought, oh, yeah, have a look. What do Chamorro speakers do with all this uh, uh, Hispanic stuff in their language? Mm -hmm. And then I noticed, uh, of course, that the Spanish had um, quite some influence also in the grammatical system of the language. Uh, but then I, it's not boring <laughs> what I tell you now. Uh, after some time, I, I, I think I had said everything that could be said about the uh, Hispanization of Chamorro. And I wanted to look at Chamorro um, independent of the Spanish influence on the language. So uh, Chamorro is interesting in itself, not just because of the Spanish influence. But I started uh, because of the Spanish influence. I saw the, the parallels between the languages in Mexico and the languages in the Philippines and uh, Chamorro, of course. And that's interesting. Why uh, do so many different languages do the same when that's they come in contact with Spanish? Yeah, that, and that's interesting. It's the, the question isn't answered yet uh, okay. uh, satisfactorily. There are a quite, uh, uh, well, let's say, there is a controversy uh, in, uh, uh, in the community of linguists about uh, how these uh, parallel processes, these recurrent pro processes can be explained. Some claim that it has something to do with cognitive uh, abilities of people. Others say it's the social situation. Uh, yet others say it's the communicative situation. There is bilingualism. People speak two languages fluently. Uh, other people claim no, it hasn't anything to do with bilingualism. Uh, it's a structure. There's a structural reason. I doubt that there is a structural reason, but that's my own op opinion. So there is a, a, a lot of discussion going on uh, among people who take an interest in language contact generally. And for these people, Chamorro has become very important. Uh, and I, I, uh, I personally have perhaps the merit that I have made, uh, that, that I have publicized the Chamorro cases uh, in English. Before mm -hmm. that, there were some uh, publications in Spanish, but uh, uh, linguistics is an English-speaking discipline in a right. way, so the international language is English. Uh, people read Spanish, of course, but uh, uh, what really counts in the community are publications in English. So as soon as something is there in English, you notice it, you take notice of it. Right. If it's uh, published in an, uh, uh, a language other than English, it's yeah sometimes taken notice of, but not always. So now that people know about tomorrow and others have started to uh, investigate uh, uh, um, into the uh, um, intricacies of tomorrow grammar as well, uh, even in Germany, there is another Steve Pagel, for instance, uh, is a colleague from the Romance Department at the University of Halle. He was an assistant professor of mine for some time, and he also made, uh, yes, genuine research, uh, fieldwork uh, uh, with Chamorro speakers uh, for some time. Now he has, uh, for uh, professional reasons, he must concentrate more on French. Uh, sure. But for some years, I, I, I think... A, 10 to 15 years, he was also involved in uh, the research uh, dedicated to Chamorro. So there are, yeah, there is a small community of people who look at Chamorro, or let's say practically 
all the time from the perspective of language contacts. And then there are some specialists uh, worldwide who uh, look at Chamorro without taking to, uh, paying too much attention to the uh, contact uh, influence uh, by Spanish. So that's the situation. Yeah. Okay, well, I find it very interesting that there would be such a controversy if there is a commonality or a common denominator when Spanish is the colonial impact for all these other languages, that they all seem to adapt the, the impression or the changes are almost universal according to what you're saying, when they were impacted by Spain. Is it the same when impacted by English? Because you, you talk about these different areas mm -hmm. very similarly to us. We were first yeah. impacted by Spain and then we were impacted by the United States. So when English from the United States side, not, not European English, but mm -hmm. English from the US side, American English, if you will, did you see a correlation between what was impacted and were they similar? Oh, it's funny about English. English, it's uh, uh, it doesn't really play a, a, a role whether it is American English or uh, British English or uh, any other kind of English, Australian English. The impact of these varieties of English on uh, less prestigious languages uh, in language contact uh, um, seems to be slightly different from what we uh, observe for other uh, prestigious languages, Spanish. Uh, has the, uh, almost the same influence everywhere <laughs> where uh, 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 Spanish is in contact with other languages. The same applies to Arabic, to Persian uh, and Russian. So we have done some research on these uh, contact situations as well. And this uh, applies to uh, several hundred constellations of prestige language and borrowing language. So it's not just an exception or a, a minority of cases. Uh, it, uh, it's really all over the place. Uh, but English is some, something, something special. Uh, there are only a few cases worldwide, although English has been in contact with uh, many languages. So it's um, up to 500 languages worldwide. But you you don't simply don't find these kinds of uh, these kinds uh, of um, uh, uh, phenomena uh, in the uh, in the same amount to the same amount as in the case of Spanish and Russian and so on. It seems that English has not uh, this kind of direct influence on the grammatical system. So sometimes okay. it's not really visible what happens because people don't necessarily borrow words and material from English, but they uh, reshape their grammar according to uh, the, the English model, uh, but you don't see it uh, immediately if you, if you have a text, a written text. Uh, everything you see are words in the, let's say, indigenous language. Right. And of course, you think that's uh, uh, um, like, uh, that's the way native speakers have been doing it for uh, hundreds of years. But then you notice, no, it's really carked, as we say, it's the patterned uh, according uh, to the English model uh, without using any English material. So there are no English words, but uh, the, the syntax, the, uh, the order, the words are used or the idioms, even the idioms are reshaped according to uh, the English model. And I have the impression that this is perhaps what happens in Chamorro uh, more often. Of course, you 
sometimes borrow English words, of course. Mm -hmm. You don't find them uh, uh, so often in uh, the written Chamorro, for instance. So uh, the material I have is also almost empty of any <laughs> English borrowings uh, as, uh, as uh, yeah, uh, referring to words in yes, this case. Yes. Uh, uh, but in everyday conversation, I know that you switch between English and Chamorro. So that uh, that happens all over the place. And that's that's a commonality. You find it everywhere in societies where people uh, are bilingual or multilingual. They switch from one language to the other, uh, um, provided they, um, let's say, have uh, uh, enough knowledge or uh, uh, consider themselves native speakers of both languages or, or all languages. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it's it's typical. It wouldn't be uh, uh, it would be surprising to any linguist uh, to find a bilingual society in which code switching doesn't exist. So sometimes it's perhaps taboo. People don't like it, but they do it. They do it. It's it's uh, stigmatized uh, very often. Uh, um, I'm very much into Maltese linguistics. Uh, Malta is also officially a bilingual country. 98% of the people speak Maltese, and there are 2% of the people who speak only English. Most of the Maltese speakers also speak English, but to different degrees, and there is a, a tiny minority of Maltese speakers who don't really get along with English. Oh. Uh, but then... In everyday com uh, communication, uh, oral communication, there is this constant, constant to and fro from Maltese to English. In one sentence, every second word is English or Maltese. Even if, if the people speak English, they very often switch back to Maltese. I think the same happens in uh, 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 on Guam and in the Marianas generally. So that people sometimes... Um, it's easier to think of an English word, uh, even if you are speaking tomorrow and the other way around. You said code switching hmm? um, is bilingual. What is it called when you can only speak one language? Monolingual. Okay, monolingual. Mm -hmm. Now, what is the definition of a bilingual speaker? Oh, yes, of course. Even there is a controversy. <laughs> uh, uh, there is no, yeah, yeah, there's, of course, uh, uh, um, consensus about uh, a bilingual speaker must know enough of both languages to produce correct sentences in uh, the one or the other. So uh, you must be able to understand, of course, both languages and produce in the language, be, be an active speaker of the languages. You can be a passively bilingual, that's also possible. You speak only one language, but you understand two. Mm -hmm. That's possible, but that's not the, let's say, uh, uh, the default case. The default case would be you, you speak and understand um, nothing about writing and reading. That's right. It's just speaking. Uh, and listening, you uh, use uh, uh, a competent uh, speaker, listener, or hearer uh, of two languages. Uh, but the degree of competence may differ, so uh, it, it isn't required. In the past, it, people thought that was the uh, you should have a stricter definition. 
you must be a fluent 100% competent speaker and hearer of both languages. Then a lot of research uh, has been done and is still going on uh, so that people are now uh, doubtful about the 100% uh, um, competence because sometimes people are uh, fluent only in certain domains. So yes. they can speak about in two languages about, let's say, sports uh, or politics, but they can't do this about other topics. There is only one language that is uh, available to them when they want to speak about religion, for instance. Mm. You can speak about religion easily in language A, uh, but B doesn't really work for you. There are different reasons. You Perhaps you don't know the vocabulary you have to use, <clears throat> or in church people use uh, 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 one language, only one language anyway, the other doesn't show up uh, during service, and so on. There are uh, several reasons for this. So there are different degrees of uh, being bilingual. You, you can't really equate it with total competence in both languages. This is an idealization that is hardly ever really uh, realized uh, by speakers. You, you, you miss, oh, you always miss something of the 100% you should uh, reach in one of the languages. So that's, uh, um, it's, th this is the state of the, the art at the moment that people are no longer assuming that you are fully competent in both languages to be a bilingual speaker. Thank you for saying that. I find it interesting that after your visit and a couple of other um, linguists, Laurie Reed, for one, I don't know if you know Dr. Mm -hmm. Reed from Japan, um, I interviewed him as well, and he has written some articles that have been published in Guampedia. But uh, exposure to international scholars is, is really appreciated here, so much so that they take some of what you say which is why I always want to update the interviews that I have with all of you. Uh -huh. And then they make their own uh, definitions of bilingualism. So, for example, after you mentioned that a bilingual person will code switch or switch from in a, in, a, in a given topic, and I appreciate very much that unless you can speak in a holistic way, the way you would in one language or the other, when you switch, you are absolutely correct that if you don't know anything about sports, you're not going to be able to switch. If you, unless you're, if you're speaking tomorrow, you're going to mm -hmm. need to know what the words are for the sports yeah. because every everything has its own language, correct? In, everything. In way, yes. So the, yeah. the language at home, the things describing home or marriage mm -hmm. or women things or men things, they all have a specific word that describes only for that. So mm -hmm. when somebody told me I was interviewing one of the World War II survivors, well, I would say maybe six years ago, and she said, you know, I'm a true bilingual speaker. And I said, oh, how do you define that? Why, why do you think you're a uh -huh. true okay. bilingual speaker? I don't disagree, but I want to know why they think they mm -hmm. are. And if they are, then that means that others are not. So when somebody uh -huh. tells me, I am a true bilingual speaker, then I want to know who is not by the definition of what they mean. And she said, because I can switch between tomorrow and English in my speech. I appreciate the clarification here that if you are capable of switching between one or two languages 
in a sentence or in a discussion, then yes, your your capacity is greater maybe than most, right? But unless you can speak yeah. in multiple disciplines or in multiple subject matters in the same way, then that increases your degree of bilingualism. So it's I, I love it. I, I I embrace it. I applaud it. I think it's great. And I'm so happy to hear that I don't have to only speak tomorrow to be a tomorrow. <laughs> or oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what this I mean? This is, of course, an identity issue, yes. uh, and linguists normally have haven't much to say about it. So, we, we, because we are not into uh, identity research, in a way, but we know, of course, that uh, language is uh, one of the major symbols of identity. Absolutely, uh, and that there is a lot of discussion even um, in in. Com uh, communities of laymen, so not really linguists, but people who right. speak uh, uh, a certain ethno-language, uh, ethnolect, uh, and um, yeah, disagree about the correct form uh, of this language. Is it uh, um, acceptable to code switch in the community? There are several communities, um, let's say many communities, uh, worldwide uh, in uh, this situation that their, uh, let's say, their language is endangered in, uh, um, because there is this prestigious language that covers all the domains of everyday life and so on. Uh, and there are just tiny niches left for uh, the ethnolect. Uh, and uh, people complain about the way the youngest generation uses the ethnolect. Um, I, I, I think I told uh, I, I told you something similar also in the first interview uh, years ago. Uh, yeah. So this this attitude of the elder generation, this negative attitude uh, of the elder generation towards the way the ethnolect is elect is used by it's the younger generation, very often contributes to language death phenomena yes. because yes. the younger generation is discouraged to use their kind of language X, because the elders say, no, that, that's not really our language. Let it die, be, uh, because we want to have it in a certain format. It must have the shape it had in the 19th century or uh, something like this. Um, but language is uh, changing constantly. That's one of the, let's say, uh, typical characteristics of language. It's uh, an organic kind of thing and if you use it you change it in a, in, in a way because you you have to adapt to the new situation and the language has to adapt uh, along with you right. uh, and that means you can't stay uh, stuck stick to a certain period uh, of life of the of your language because the times have changed so language should be able to change and if it is in uh, the survival of the language is guaranteed in the form the younger uh, the younger generation uses it then that's the way it will survive otherwise you you really uh, uh, you you commit uh, linguistic suicide, suicide in a way absolutely. if you stick to this yeah this is arlene live and we've got more coming up in just a moment one of the discussions that i got into with somebody once was well arlene there's no word in the Chamorro language for computer I said, there doesn't have to be a word in the tomorrow language no. for computer. You can just call it a computer. Our ancestors weren't using computers, so they didn't mm -hmm. develop that. But 
if we if we can't develop names for uh, objects today, then we should. I think we should use what is being utilized. Mm -hmm. You identify the Chamorro language as being different. Now, I've had other people describe it as being old. It's a very old form of language. Some say that it's even Sanskrit influenced. And I'm thinking, okay, that's really interesting. So, so we have, because we don't have anyone who's really studying mm -hmm. the Chamorro language, because it's not one of the romantic languages, if you will, or maybe one of the dominant languages, mm -hmm. we've been neglected. And many of us don't really understand a lot of the words that we we think are maybe indigenous. One of those would be that interest that we have in the word Lati. We would like to ask how many other words in our language are mm -hmm. borrowed. And just because they're borrowed doesn't mean they're not indigenous now. Or, no, no, no. Okay, thank you. Yeah. If we're using it today, does that make it indigenous? Uh, if if uh, you use it today, it's of course uh, indigenous. If if your parents used it, uh, and it has been in your language for uh, let's say at least two generations, it has become integrated. So it's it's part of your language. Um, it's not really indigenous in the extreme interpretation of being indigenous, meaning it should have been there already a thousand years ago. Okay. But if you look back at that time, um, of, uh, the, the oldest documents uh, recording uh, Tamoro language material go back to the 17th century. So it's not just a, a thousand years, but uh, you can mm. re reconstruct something. But uh, uh, that is of uh, absolutely no use uh, to try to, let's say, purify the language by going back in time and then recreating uh, a kind of um, pure Austronesian kind of tomorrow. First of all, you can be wrong <laughs> with your reconstructions. Uh, it's, it's not really a safe business to, to reconstruct forms uh, because you are dependent on historical documents and then your intuition, and your intuition can be erroneous, right. of course. Yeah. Uh, secondly, you would make people, native speakers of the language, uh, you force them to learn a new language. It's no longer the language they use in everyday communication, but a, a kind of artificial product. And the third effect is then after re, after the re-emergence of the purified version of your language, you have to safeguard it in this form. It must be, let's say, uh, you have to freeze it uh, um, uh, to, avo to avoid uh, changes in the future because you now you have reconstructed the ideal form of your language and it must stay this way forever. This is against uh, the idea of progress yeah, and evolution and uh, developments. Um, uh, uh, so um, let's say it's it's not a good idea. You can do it for... Uh, or even artistic reasons like enchants and things like that, right? Yes, of course, uh, even that. Um, let's say, if, if people say uh, the language is odd, that's, of course, something linguists shouldn't do and uh, normally wouldn't do. Uh, you, do. you don't really judge languages uh, as to 
qualities or something. You can't compare languages uh, uh, in this way of good and bad and, uh, let's say, worthy, unworthy, and uh, things like that. That's uh, uh, not academic, uh, unscientific. Uh, you shouldn't do that. And it's perhaps a layman's judgment, I, I, I think. Uh, uh, the other thing is uh, the Sanskrit influence or the element that's just a funny idea. I, I, um, let's state it clearly. Uh, there, there can't be any uh, Sanskrit in uh, Chamorro. And that's uh, no language needs Sanskrit <laughs> to be there. Uh, it doesn't really raise the language uh, on an imagined hierarchy of beauty or whatever. Uh, it's just a funny idea. So it, uh, there is not, nothing that comes from or stems from Sanskrit there in uh, tomorrow. And that's uh, absolutely no problem. You, you, uh, you wouldn't be able to prove it and you wouldn't be able to disprove it <laughs> because mm. you can still have funny ideas about how the Sanskrit elements changed before they came into tomorrow. Yeah. It's um, the predecessor of Hindi, if you want to put it like this. It was recorded, documented for the first time uh, before uh, uh, um, uh, the Christian era. Uh, uh, I think about 500 before Christ. So uh, there was the first kind of grammar of Sanskrit at that time uh, when it became uh, the holy language of uh, uh, the religious cult in India at that time, Hinduism uh, in, uh, in particular. Uh, it wasn't a spoken language uh, anymore at that time already, so it had uh, become a kind of, uh, let's say, um, mm -hmm, a kind of Latin of the uh, Catholic Church. Mm. Uh, that was so, so the, the parallel, but Sanskrit is still there, so it's uh, still one of the official languages of India. And people sometimes claim that there are still native speakers of the language, so it has survived into uh, the present day. Um, although uh, it's uh, perhaps the idea that there are native speakers, I'm, I'm not sure about it, but I can't disprove it uh, anyway. But uh, mm -hmm. uh, it's, uh, if there are native speakers, it's a very tiny group of people among the millions and hundreds of millions and more than a, a billion uh, inhabitants of uh, India, there are about 2,500 speakers of uh, Sanskrit. That's uh, what is claimed. Yeah, I think the reason that it was brought up in a discussion was to inference or insinuate that the Chamorro language was that old. Not old in the sense that ah, it's archaic, okay. but old in the hmm. sense of ancient. You know, that it, it is such a, it has such a, a back history uh, mm -hmm. in its development rather than old in that it's, it's not worthy. It's just the okay. opposite old. <laughs> yeah. To, um, to kind of romance, you know, it's it's not a new language, if you will. It's not something. No, it's new. not a new language. Yeah. The the the, sh the shape it has nowadays is 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 of course new because yes. that's the product of the contact with Spanish and now English, of course. Right. But there was a Chamorro before the Spaniards came, uh, and it had been there already for perhaps hundreds of years. So we 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 don't know exactly. Uh, when Chamorro uh, became an individual language, uh, different from other Austronesian languages of the area, so that we can't really determine it, determine it uh, exactly. 
uh, when that happened, but it may be uh, um, that we are speaking about millennia. Mm. Now, that's an interesting thought that you bring up because you said that the original people back when spoke mm -hmm. tomorrow. And, and I, I grew up at a time when we were first uh, identified as Guamanians and then politically as Chamorro. Uh, a friend of mine wrote an article that the original people that came here from Wares who spoke Chamorro. And I said, I don't think they spoke Chamorro. They spoke something that developed into the Chamorro language, yeah. but I don't think it's safe to say that the people that first came here even spoke what we're speaking today. So I understand what she's doing and I don't necessarily disagree. But to say that with certainty, I think is a mistake because we need to mm -hmm. identify those people differently if the Chamorro identity today is a political one. And it, it had become a political one after what, World War II. So Chamorro identifies the language, but it also identifies the people. Like in the Philippines, they're the Filipinos as a country, and, uh, but their, their dialects are different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't there a difference, Thomas, between uh, oral speakers or linguistic speakers and writers? Yeah, there's a difference, of course. As as long as you, if, uh, if uh, as long as there is a high degree of intercomprehension between the varieties of a language, you can uh, say that they just belong to the same language. There are just dialects of it. Okay. Uh, writers um, and speakers follow different uh, principles. So uh, the, the everyday communication, oral communication, uh, follows the needs of the co communicative uh, situation, of course, and you adapt normally to your partner in communication. So uh, you're uh, trying to get your message through and uh, trying to understand what the other uh, person is saying to you. So uh, you're ready to accept uh, a, a range of variation and still understand the other one. So if you write, there comes uh, the normative pressure some, uh, into play. So very often, I can't really say this for tomorrow, uh, because uh, I'm, I'm lacking the evidence. I, I have some ideas about it, but I don't want to go into this. Sure. But there are many other communities, even uh, in German, <laughs> you have it. People have a hard time writing their language because then if you write the language, you are somehow, you feel that you're uh, forced to uh, uh, comply to the rules that are imposed by normative grammar. So there are some people <laughs> who tell you how to write your language. You would speak it differently, but when you put it on paper, or let's say in emails or whatever, but normally on paper, you have this feeling, oh, you, oh, oh don't, I, I, I have to be careful because others look at it and say, you, you don't really uh, have the competence in your own language. You don't know how to write it properly. So you are under pressure then. In a, a oral communication, you can also be under, under pressure, of course, but for different reasons. And you perhaps don't really look at the um, 
the formal aspect of, uh, uh, of your utterances. But if you write, you, you try to fulfill the, the, uh, the, the ideal of uh, the written uh, register yeah, you're using. So uh, there are, the minds are differently affected by norms. If you write, the normative pressure is much stronger than uh, in speaking. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, of course, a difference. So perhaps uh, in speaking, you notice that your uh, partner in communication speaks a different dialect, but you still understand the person. Right, right. Then a, a, in writing, the distances between the varieties uh, may uh, um, uh, become uh, uh, bigger. Uh, so the gap between the varieties can be uh, made uh, uh, bigger. Uh, 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 that happens very often. There's an example, Macedonian and Bulgarian uh, are languages in Europe, uh, Slavic languages. Uh, they're uh, normally in co conversation, I claim it now, they're uh, intercomprehensible. So speakers of Macedonian can understand Bulgarian and Bulgarians would normally understand uh, Macedonian uh, in the spoken register. But oh. in the written form, they are on purpose. They were made different so that you can claim that Macedonian is a different language uh, from uh, Bulgarian. That's a, this is a political issue, of course, uh, as right. you can imagine. Uh, you, uh, you write it differently, not in orthography, but you have to uh, 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 um, uh, keep two different uh, rules in grammar as well. So uh, reading Macedonian is uh, much more difficult for a Bulgarian speaker than listening <laughs> to understanding uh, spoken Macedonian and the other way around. So... Um, the, uh, the written register is perhaps sometimes, not always, um, the source for creating, um, to, to splitting a language community of once hom homogeneous language community into two or several communities. Mm. And uh, this has happened during language history, uh, also with the Scandinavian languages and so on. So this is uh, something you have a, Perhaps uh, if you look at the Marianas, there are two political bodies. You have Guam on the one side, then there is a boundary, of course. And at the other side of the frontier, you have the Northern Mariana Islands. So you're two countries in a way. Yes. Uh, the same happened with Sweden, Norway and Denmark. Uh, at least between Norway and Sweden, people understand the spoken varieties no problem with that, but you have at least two different written languages. Uh, well, we, we, see that, we see that beginning to emerge mm -hmm. in Guam and the CNMI. Because of the orthography, they adopt to a, you spell it the way you say it, method rather than in Guam where we follow the Chamorro orthography. The only way that the split is going to occur if it is seriously followed where grammatical differences occur yes, for, yes, the, yes. for the writing. I don't yeah. see that happening, honestly. In my observation, I don't see that occurring because if we continue to make it difficult for our youngsters to mm -hmm. speak it, and then we hold an even higher standard to write it, we are going to kill our own language. And so, yeah. and we cannot, we cannot blame Spain. 
We cannot blame the United States. We cannot blame Japan, even though we use loan words from those three countries in our speech today. I don't think those youngsters are going to want to fight the way our elders mm -hmm. are fighting to hold on to this language. So when I think about the work of helping to encourage Chamorro language, I've started writing children's books in the Chamorro mm -hmm. language. I'm still holding dear and true to the way things used to be when I grew up and, and the culture of uh. respect and, and how we were more tactical. We were more with the land and growing things and, and, you know, developing like that. And at some point, Thomas, we were indoctrinated that speaking English and mm -hmm. going to college and becoming a successful professor or lawyer or Indian yeah. chief was better than encouraging our culture. And now we are going backwards. We have a tomorrow month of all things. We are now talking, you and I, during tomorrow month. We are celebrating a month to remember what it was like to be tomorrow, how to weave, how to speak, how to act, how to talk, how to cook, you know, things like that. Why do we have to carve out a day to do this? It's like making it a Martin Luther King day or, mm -hmm. you know, or Christmas or Easter. This is the effort that they're trying to do so that the young people will know how to weave so it doesn't die. We are the ones that will decide by our yes, own yes. use, right? Yes. Yes. No matter what you have to say or no matter what anyone says who's a scholar on language, history, culture, anthropology, whatever, if we, the people of Guam and the Northern Marianas, don't embrace who we are and live it, I don't know that it's going to survive. Maybe it will until I die. I'm 66, 67 this year. My grandchildren, they're showing more interest as they get older. but. If we don't leave something for them, if we don't leave positive reinforcement and give them that while they're making the effort, they're not going to do it. There has to be a value. What do you think as a linguist? How is it done with other languages? Ah, yeah, it, it's a difficult issue. So this kind of revitalization or uh, uh, safeguarding uh, of uh, the survival of uh, endangered languages is a really difficult uh, topic uh, because there are so many negative examples <laughs> uh, uh, um, worldwide in a way. So there are, uh, Tomorrow is not the only language uh, on the globe uh, that is endangered. So there are hundreds, even thousands of languages uh, whose uh, um, destiny is um, uh, Perilous. Let's say, yeah, very negative. So some people claim that three, two thirds of the languages spoken nowadays uh, uh, will uh, not survive the next two generations. Um, these are very small language communities, mostly uh, near the equator. Uh, so very uh, small communities, um, which are economically and socially and politically um, some can say underdeveloped, you, you shouldn't use this uh, term anymore, but they don't have equal uh, uh, chances in the, uh, the countries 
where other languages are dominant, most, very often European languages, col uh, languages of the former colonizer, uh, which have become uh, the state languages of the now independent states and so on. When you yeah. talk about this equator related geography, we are all small. I mean, Guam is yes. very close. Yeah, right. So we yeah, don't yeah. have the population to survive that, right? Yes and no. <laughs> yes okay. and no. It's always, yes, it's always uh, um, not as straightforward as you think. You okay. might think it, it's, it's, of course, uh, if your community is small, and that means uh, below 100,000 speakers normally, uh, or very small, below uh, 10,000 speakers, or micro languages below 1,000 speakers, uh, then your the chances of survival are uh, uh, really um, uh, small. But there are examples of languages which strive <laughs> even with small uh, uh, communities. So it's uh, sometimes dependent on the internal solidarity of the group of speakers. If they're all convinced that the language has to survive, for whatever reasons, cultural reasons, political reasons, economical reasons, or whatever, because one, people want to keep it, and they all make an effort, then chances are, uh, even uh, if um, there is no money for it, in, in a way, to uh, 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 help the language uh, surviving, uh, 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 it's possible, it's feasible uh, to save your language. But even in larger communities with millions of speakers, the situation can be that the, the present speaker generation didn't think of passing on down the language to the next generation because there is a prestigious language uh, we uh, use in school and everyday life. Um, the other language, uh, our ethnolect, will be learned at home or in the street. Uh, and then uh, there is no formal education in the language and the younger generation uh, is mobile. They move from this place to another place, to another country and so on. And then you lose your speakers. Of course, that happened. We have this here in, in Germany next to my uh, hometown now, Bremen. Uh, we had a very, we still have a relatively large minority language, uh, which should have several million speakers but all of them are speakers of German as well. So that's low German, the other. It's also called German, but it's a different language, low German. Mm -hmm. uh, the language was the dominant language for many uh, centuries in this part of, of Germany, but people gradually uh, uh, shifted to German because it was economically more interesting because the market where you can, uh, could sell your products Mm. Uh, as a farmer or uh, a, a merchant uh, that was in the southern part of Germany where uh, German was spoken. So mm. there, there was an economical reason for this. Uh, you can't really blame people for oh. giving up their language because uh, they see their future in a different linguistic context. Right. Of course. Right. But then after several hundred years of giving up the language gradually, uh, the, the last generation started to uh, get uh, second thoughts about it. Oh, now we lose our language. 
what do what do we do with the language? Oh, there are still two thousand two point five million speakers uh, around in the entire uh, north of Germany. It's a minority still, but it's a sizable group of people. But then you get along without using low German. You use German every day. You are educated in the language. Uh, all the media uh, are in uh, German and so on. And if you want to get a good job in another part of Germany, you have to use German, not low German. So the situation is uh, uh, remains the same. Mm. Uh, for economical and social reasons, it's much more <coughs> promising to use the prestigious language and by the way, most of the people speak it better than their ethnolect. So it's just a kind of pretended native language uh, anymore. And although there are 2.5 million speakers, the, 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 vast, the vast majority of these speakers has simply forgotten to teach the language to the next generation. They've sim simply forgotten. Now they're complaining about it, but it's their own fault. Yeah. Uh, the, no German government has told them not to pass on <laughs> uh, the language. Of course, it wasn't taught at school, yes, but they could have asked for it. They right. didn't ask for it. Now they are asking for it, and you can you get these little points and dots on the uh, on the map where there is a school where you can have an hour every week in the uh, low German variety and so on. But it's just symbolic. There are some villages, of course, where the majority of people would normally speak low German among themselves, but as soon as a foreigner enters, uh, people switch to German. You almost describe exactly what happened with us here, because yeah. after World War II, many of our survivors, if you will, joined the military, moved off island in the States from the West Coast to the East Coast, and they allow their children to speak English because who speaks Chamorro in those schools, right? Yeah. They, wanted, they wanted better education for those kids. And so everybody spoke English. What I find interesting now, there is clearly a desire to learn the Chamorro language. And that, that is evidenced by the effort that everyone has done to try to recreate interest or take pride in the Chamorro language with everything that's being done. There are many people that go online with Miguel Bevacqua, who used to be a professor at the university, when he started teaching free Chamorro classes. He has a pretty sizable following, and it shows that there's interest. But if you don't harness this interest, if it's just spotted and you have one uh, summer program or one school program yeah. and not adopted by the entire education program where there it's an immersion from pre-k all the way to senior yeah and then again into the university it is not a dedicated effort to retain or sustain and yes. promote the Jamar language i i totally agree uh, all, all these measures you uh, you uh, mentioned like evening classes uh, special programs summer schools and what's on um, uh, these programs address uh, adult speakers uh, normally uh, who learn the language as a second or foreign language. It's not their native language anymore. It's their uh, language of identification. Okay, that's okay. And they should learn it. But to uh, make Chamorro fit for the next hundred years, 
you must create native speakers. So you must start at home. As soon as the infant is there, address him or her in tomorrow. tomorrow. And English should be, in a way, I'm, I'm not talking, I have an anti, anti-English uh, right. agenda now, but if there is a prestigious language that is um, responsible for the endangerment of your ethnolec, try to postpone, um, let's say, um, the ed education in this language until school begins. So the first three years are uh, crucial for, um, yeah, well, let, let's say planting the language in the mind of the uh, language acquiring uh, child. So for the first uh, three years, it should be predominantly tomorrow, how you address your, uh, your infant or uh, your children. Later on, of course, English should be there. You need English, <laughs> you can't really uh, do without it. Uh, if you don't want to create an isolated community uh, for international contacts and so on. But learning tomorrow in your old age is not the creation of a new generation of native speakers. Now, more Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Of course, a language can survive uh, um, with uh, second language speakers, foreign language speakers, um, but then it's it's a language of a different type. It's it's not no longer a, a native language, a, a natural language. It's something you have acquired later, and you are um, in a way your uh, your competence in the language will always remain limited. You're, you can't be really creative in the language because you, you will repeat patterns you have learned uh, uh, as an adult. As a native speaker who has acquired the language as one's first language, you are fully creative and you can de further develop the language as uh, uh, someone who does it uh, naturally uh, not uh, by repeating something that a, a teacher has told you uh, to memorize, so that's uh, that's a difference. I, I'm I'm not arguing against learning tomorrow right. as a second or foreign language. That's fine, but yeah, it's uh, it's uh, illusionary to think that the language will survive as a full blown language with uh, second uh, language speakers. Uh, it's the task of the parents. Okay. The parents have to use it. And that's very often very difficult for uh, or other um, similar cases uh, uh, in the world. People uh, often think, parents think, might learn the language anyway by listening to something. And this, uh, we are concerned about the social and economical future of our child. So it's better for us to teach uh, um, the prestigious language that guarantees success in society uh, to uh, our child first, and the other language will come naturally Better. because um, uh, the, the child listens to what happens uh, elsewhere in the street or in the family when the elders are uh, uh, talking to each other. So that's, mm, I, I think that's the uh, um, misjudgment of the situation. 
you have to teach your children the language that you want them to speak. No. What language did you teach your children? To, my, to, to our daughter, you mean? Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's German, of course. <laughs> she learned all the uh, foreign languages at school. So, uh, this, oh, uh, and that's, how many that, languages does she speak? Uh, yeah, uh, English, Italian, and Dutch now, because she's uh, at university in, in the Netherlands at the moment. She had some input in uh, Armenian because she spent some time in Armenia. Uh, and she, yeah, the classical language, yeah, Latin and uh, ancient Greek, but that uh, 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 these aren't uh, languages for everyday communication. Um, wow! She did, uh, so she's uh, like uh, you. She's a linguist. No, 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 no. Oh no! Uh, <laughs> she she, de she declared publicly that she wouldn't do the same as her parents. My wife is a linguist too. Okay. Uh, and she said, oh, no, oh, this stuff you are doing. Well, no, no, she is into comparative politics. Oh, dear. <laughs> yes, oh, dear, yes. <laughs> I have the feeling that she has picked the right uh, uh, discipline for her. So that's... For her no personality, nobody, yeah. Nobody has to become a linguist. You must feel like it. Yeah. <laughs> then you have to do it. If you don't feel like it. Yeah, not going to happen. You talked about a window of opportunity for language learning, and you identified mm -hmm. the first three years. Can you explain why? Yeah, because in that at that time, uh, the, the let's say the cognitive uh, apparatus of the uh, child, language acquiring child, is still uh, let's say empty in a way. So you can put in everything uh, uh, as an input. Uh, linguistically, and as soon as there is already something, the mind of the child, the cognitive system, um, makes assumptions about uh, structures, what possible structures there are in grammar and so on. And this also affects other languages you learn. The first language you uh, internalize in your brain will somehow shape how you interpret other languages yet that, that you have to learn. Sometimes it slows down uh, the speed, uh, the, the, uh, the speed with which you uh, acquire uh, another language. Sometimes it doesn't because it's really individual also. So people have different individual capacities uh, in language learning. So, uh, some people learn languages yeah. without looking at a page. They just listen and have this ability and would never become linguists because that this analytical kind of uh, pers uh, perspective on language is alien to them. But they are um, a very versed language learners. So that uh, you don't have to be a linguist to uh, learn many languages and the other way around as well. Um, so uh, the, these early years are important for let's say, your mind making hypotheses about possible structures of languages. And this also uh, ch channels, in a way, how you uh, uh, process new information you get about other languages uh, when you are at school and so on. So if you learn English first, 
And then tomorrow, English has already paved the way for certain processes. It, it's easier to learn those things that are similar between the two languages because English is already there and tells you, ah, these are the structures. You can learn them, let's say, more speedily. Mm, these well, things. Then, that, then that kind of answers the question because uh, you initially stated that where Spanish impacted native speakers, there mm -hmm. is this consistency of change among those native speakers. But mm -hmm. when it was English, it was not. And so following my question of why the first three years, if the cognitive ability of a child in the first three years of his life is formative in his mind, yeah, does, yeah. does that mean that he is able to detect specific sounds that matter to him in the language that he's learning that he should pay attention to? Yes, there are some theories about this, even, uh, let's say, experiments with uh, children, unborn children, <laughs> still. Uh, so um, uh, pregnant women uh, were tested. Uh, so um, they were exposed to um, language recordings uh, or natural speech in the language of the community into which the child was going to be born. So, and afterwards, uh, other uh, after birth of the child, um, other experiments were uh, conducted, and the linguists who conducted these uh, experiments, psycholinguists, that's the branch of linguistic right. that takes care of these things. Um, uh, observed that the children already had a kind of knowledge of the intonation of the language, so they could recognize, they were tested with people who, uh, who spoke different languages in their uh, surroundings, and they, uh, they reacted differently to people who spoke their ethnolect, the ethnolect they still had to learn, um, uh, differently from uh, 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 their reaction to people who spoke a, another language, a different language. So they, they already had some kind of idea. This is mm, home, in a way. Uh, right, if the intonation right. is like this, mm -hmm. even some sounds, it's not really clear how far this um, is reliable uh, as to the results, but it seems that some sound contract, uh, co contrasts Let's say it's between uh, voiceless and voiced consonants, P and B, for instance. Some lang languages don't have this co contrast, others have it, uh, and you can test it. So do P, uh, the children react who are supposed to speak a language with a voice contrast when they are exposed to a language that doesn't have this contrast, do they react differently? And this can be measured in microseconds. So it's, wow. it's really something you can't really observe as a layman. That's impossible. You need right. machinery for that. So, uh, and um, uh, of course, it's, it's very, uh, let's say, um, yeah, demanding technically to conduct these experiments. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, results, uh, experiments only for a handful of languages and a handful of cases. So you, it's, it's 
still a little bit daring to uh, generalize over these cases, okay. but the evidence is interesting at least. So you would say, oh, it's, it's possible that children already get some ideas about the languages they will be exposed to after birth. So that's, uh, of course, interesting. And then if it's already possible to influence the child's mind linguistically before birth, then you know how important it is to then immediately start to talk uh, to uh, uh, the child, address it uh, in uh, the ethnolect or in the language of your choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the reason I ask that is because it, we have been encouraged to speak to our child, if you will, mm -hmm. in the womb. So yeah. I read to my kids when, when I was pregnant with them. I read to them as children, but I read the English language. Um, I did not speak tomorrow to them. However, as they got older and now that they're all becoming parents, they are children and they are asking about tomorrow language. And when my children, my last two were growing up and I would speak to them in tomorrow, because it was encouraged that we again do it at that point, right? They told mm -hmm. her, Mom, why are you speaking Tagalog to me? And I said, I'm not speaking Tagalog to you. This is tomorrow. But they had been aware already that the Tagalogs were switching at home. They were, or the Koreans. Mm -hmm. Interestingly enough, our youngest son said, Mom, I don't want to learn tomorrow. I want to learn Korean because more of the kids speak Korean than they speak tomorrow because mm -hmm. he wanted to associate. And in the school that he was in, there were yes. a lot of Koreans. Yes. So it was very clear to me that it was a social thing. Now that he's 27, his social uh, uh, circle are more tomorrow. So he now is adopting. But he's he's one of these that you talk about, Thomas, where he, he just listens. He took a Latin test and he passed it. He didn't even take the course. He just has a... He, but. Mm -hmm. He's not interested in in making it a you know a career or anything. He just has a gift for it. Mm -hmm. He's very jovial about it. He he yeah. says he he can greet people in multiple languages where I can't. So, but I'm not interested in doing that. You know, it's just I think desire is is very like you said. You either want to want to do it or you don't. You can't force it on anybody. Yeah. Now mm -hmm. I want to go to the Chamorro language and your your research here. You started here in 2007. Can you tell us what yeah. you did in 2007? Yes, I brought along a group of students, 11 female students, who were supposed to do some field work on tomorrow on topics of their choice. So they have collected data in the interaction with Chamorro speakers. Uh, the data are still there. We have, uh, I think, 60 hours of untranscribed material oh. uh, uh, on tapes uh, still at our institute. And I'm trying to train some people to start transcribing it because the tapes are getting old. By uh, Now that we have to digitize them and so on. Uh, the, the, the less positive aspect of the, our uh, excursion to uh, um, Guam at that time was that none of uh, my, uh, my students decided to take a degree uh, with a thesis uh, on uh, Chamorro matters. So they all uh, opted for something else. 
They were really enchanted by uh, the opportunity to go to the, the island, uh, have contact with the people and so on. But then it turned out that linguistics is uh, really a demanding uh, subject matter. And, and uh, they, they, they weren't, they, they, they really didn't feel most of them. I think there was one exception. I tell you about the exception. So that's uh, 10 of them didn't really feel comfortable with uh, uh, Chamorro, uh, uh, with the Chamorro language because they weren't competent enough. Mm. Uh, so they decided, no, uh, just I uh, keep my hands off the material because I'm, I'm not sure about my analysis and uh, that I do it really right. But there was one exception, Barbara Devine, who spent some time at the University of Guam uh, and uh, also wrote her uh, master's thesis uh, about uh, Chamorro. So that was the one <laughs> positive if, yeah. effect. And she also intended to do her PhD. But then she got a job outside the university and you know how it is if sure. there is uh, money involved. Um, Great motivator. You have to make your, your choice and she decided against the university. Uh, but of course, there she has done uh, research on reduplication in uh, Chamorro so uh, uh, that you have uh, the possibility to repeat syllables in Chamorro to... Uh, make clear that you intensify something or that it is happening right now at the moment, Lilie, uh, things like this. Uh, and she has, um, first of all, uh, reviewed the, the extant literature on this topic. Chamorro is mentioned time and again as a, uh, as a language with special reduplicative structures. It's, it's different from other languages. Um, we know about who, uh, which have this kind of uh, possibility to reduplicate uh, syllables. Um, and then she, uh, she wanted to put forward a, a theory of her own in the PhD that never materialized. But, uh, so this was one of the projects. We uh, uh, worked on reduplication at that time. In uh, 2011, we published a book on it, uh, but Tamori is mentioned only uh, occasionally in this uh, in this book. Okay, well, that's sad, but you know we understand. I mean, the whole reason that we have higher education is about uh, development, and if she mm -hmm. if her interests uh, grew, that's all what we're talking about. Sometimes our interests change and. At the time, she was dedicated to it, and thank you for the work that she has done. Now, in 2000, uh, what was the next one, 11? What happened then? Yeah, we uh, came back to uh, Guam and then also, uh, also Saipan uh, because uh, we were conducting a, a project at that time uh, on the uh, old documents uh, um, about the uh, Chamorro language dating back to the colonial times, so German 1700s. colonial times. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, for, let's say, between 1899 and 1940, because some of the material was published or, uh, only after the end of the German era uh, right. in the Marianas. Uh, a lot of the material has never been published before, so we uh, tried to uh, do a first edition of this material. Uh, and uh, again, Barbara Devine, uh, the one who wanted to do the PhD, um, discovered several manuscripts uh, um, 
at an uh, pub at a publishing house in the Netherlands. They were just oh. there dusting full of dust on the shelves in uh, the archives. So an entire um, dictionary uh, of the Tamaru language, Tamaru German um, dictionary dating back to the 1930s. Um, we're still in the process of editing it because it's difficult and uh, we had to make clear that there were no uh, claims to the manuscript by uh, the um, um, heirs of, of the author. Sure. The one who compiled uh, the dictionary. Uh, he had also written a bulky grammar of uh, the Tamaru language in German, and we have uh, started to translate it into English because it's uh, not so accessible <laughs> in the original language. Uh, and uh, that was what we discussed with the people at that time. So, um, because we needed information about some of the translation, um, some of the Tomorrow words that were there in the dictionary were translated into German with idioms in uh, tomorrow and we wanted to know whether these idioms are uh, realistic because the, the uh, dictionary compiler uh, remembered tomorrow when he wrote the dictionary. He learned it as, as a child well, uh, with a, um, a child of German settlers uh, in the colony so he grew up speaking tomorrow but then had to leave the islands after the First World War. Uh, and 20 years later, he remembered the language wow. and uh, compiled wow. this dictionary and wrote the grammar. And there uh, will be a lot of errors, of course, because um, memory is uh, not always reliable, as you, uh, as you know. So we wanted to check what is reliable, what is realistic, uh, and uh, annotate these examples in the edition. But it's still going on, so it's uh, it's really uh, um, time consuming, and you uh, I need um, co-workers who uh, are uh, somehow familiar with Tamil language structure, and they are uh, at the moment I'm. Uh, uh, confident that uh, the, the new group, there's a new group of three students, also female students, uh, of course, no, you can forget about our male students, um, by the way, so uh, I, I haven't said this. Um, and they are interested really in uh, tomorrow now, so that, um, I, I think that we will do some uh, do away with some of the work that is still piling up on my desk uh, so um, let's say in two to three years, uh, we will have uh, at least the dictionary ready for oh, publication. That, that uh, would be wonderful. Yeah, it, but it's a, it's a historical document, of course. Yes. Uh, it's, uh, whether it is uh, worth anything uh, is up to uh, the tomorrow speaking community to decide. So uh, right. there are perhaps some lexical items there in the dictionary that are um, nowadays missing from other dictionaries and you can right. fill in the gaps using this dictionary but it will still take some time because um, of several problems uh, the, the person who compiled the dictionary um, wasn't really content with some of his decisions so um, um, there are alternative translations sometimes, and so on. There, there are th yeah. these the usual editorial problems uh, occur right. uh, occur, uh, occur very often. 
I'm familiar with, with that situation. My husband and I were privileged to be given the uh, permission to republish the 1908 Chamorro Bible. And I did it for two reasons. Mm -hmm. My primary reason was to show that the people of Guam knew that Jehovah was the name of the, of the universal God and that the people of Guam could actually read that they were, they were, you know, uh, not only bilingual because they spoke Chamorro and they spoke English, but that they were literate in, in, in because they, it was a, a mm -hmm. sign that they could read they could understand, they were reading the Bible in English, and then here was an effort to translate the Bible into the, into uh -huh. the English and the Chamorro language. And so a congregational missionary had the assistance of a distant relative of mine, and the family translated uh, the, the English, King James, into the Chamorro language. The, the criticism came, interestingly, from a priest, was that it it should not be considered because the orthography is no longer the orthography of today and i thought <laughs> i couldn't believe that 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 was even a comment that he could make any document mm -hmm. from any period in our history is valuable when you examine it from a linguistic yes. standpoint yes. right it can inform yes. you. Ooh. Yeah. So how wh and why would he debunk it for any reason instead of encourage its use? And when it was utilized, when you read it, Thomas, if you if you read it out loud and you read it fluently, and it takes practice because, like you said, when something is written, it changes the the structure of how it's spoken because of the rules of grammar, right, or the rules of writing. But if you do spend time reading it, it's very understandable. And and mm -hmm. a cousin of mine read it, made it his business to read it, and read it in church. And he and he was wonderful at it. It, it really shows, I think, that attitude goes a lot farther in in preserving or maintaining or continuing something than anything else. Mm -hmm. If you don't have the right heart condition for something, you're not going to change. You're going to be, you're going to dig your heels in the ground and say, I'm not moving. And you're going to be part of the people mm -hmm. that kill it instead of embracing change. You said in the very beginning that, that language is like an organism. It needs to grow. It needs to develop. It needs to change. Otherwise, it's of no benefit to anybody. Yes, that's it. That's it's, uh, the correct way to look at language, at least at human language. Of course, you can yes. have artificial languages yes. and so on, but Chamorro is not an artificial language. No, it's not. It's a human now, language. Yeah. Now, your, your work in 2018, before we close, I would like you to share with us, what is the interest in finding the name places of Ghani? And Ghani... If we can, if we can define, are all the islands that are north of Saipan, because Saipan, mm -hmm. Tinian, and Luta and Guam are the southernmost islands, right? And but yeah. anything north of Saipan is considered Ghani, the the Ghani Islands. Why are you interested in the place names? Does that have anything to do with your dictionary? 
No, it has nothing to do with the dictionary. Okay. There is another project going on, a, a relatively, let's say, a huge project. Uh, we've been uh, conducting for almost 12 years now, okay. uh, together with other colleagues at the University of Bremen from different departments and other universities in, in Germany. Uh, it's dedicated uh, to uh, the place names uh, that were created uh, during the colonial period. Europeans going elsewhere uh, in the world, dominating foreign uh, countries uh, and um, naming places there. What do they do? What have they done? So we wanted to take stock of the, uh, let's, let's say, the Europeanization of the place names of the world. So uh, we have collected uh, a lot of material. And uh, it, it was just, uh, let's say, by chance that I came across uh, some maps of the Ghani Islands, official maps. And I was struck by uh, the emptiness <laughs> of the maps because there were, were hardly any place names uh, uh, on the islands. So not, uh, nothing really uh, that you could see. Uh, whereas other islands, uh, the southern islands, uh, Saipan, Tinian, and so on, uh, their maps are full of place names. Not only settlements, uh, but also rivulets, bays, uh, beaches, uh, heights, and so on. Every uh, kind of geo object you can name has a name. There are geo-objects also on the uh, Ghani Islands. Why aren't there any names? So I asked other people at the time uh, in Saipan, uh, Scott Russell at that time, uh, whether he knew about it. And he told me, oh, no, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, there are other maps. We've, look, we've looked for uh, other maps of the islands. Um, there weren't so many other <laughs> maps around, but uh, it was the situation, uh, uh, the same situation uh, was also uh, valid for the uh, other maps. There weren't hardly any names for objects on the islands. So this is uh, interesting because people have lived on the islands, off and on, of course, uh, but people were born there uh, and or perhaps also buried. They went to church. I think there was also a school sometimes uh, on uh, some of the islands. The population wasn't really uh, huge at any time, but uh, people had to move about on the islands and to orientate themselves. It was very likely that they used place names. So they, they, they just uh, had to indicate where they were going, where they could be met, uh, where they ha had been and so on. And normally, for European mindset, you <laughs> refer to the places by name. Right. right. So, so it was... Uh, in my eyes, it was remarkable that there weren't any place names. So uh, then the idea came up uh, that there were uh, former inhabitants of the Ghani Islands were still living uh, in the northern Marianas, on Tinian, for instance. We could ask them uh, whether they remembered any place names. Uh, or perhaps we were wrong. That was the idea. Perhaps there never were any permanent place names, uh, but even, uh, let's say, uh, temporary place names would, be, would have been interesting. Uh, 
-hmm. We have looked at the uh, Japanese military maps of the islands as well. There were only place names for Pagan and, and uh, no place names of, uh, on the other islands. The old German maps uh, were the same. Uh, there were uh, the, the Spanish maps, they were not really detailed maps at that time, uh, were lacking. Uh, place names, but in the old reports about the war between the conquest of the uh, the islands by the Spaniards, some settlement names were uh, mentioned for the uh, islands uh, north of Saipan. So um, when people lived there at that time, Tamoros, they used to call their villages by names. Hmm? So there were place names at that time. Of course, then uh, well, uh, the settlement was disrupted for a, a long time and then resettlement began in the late 19th century uh, uh, on kind of seasonal uh, uh, settlements uh, sometimes and so on. And then the Germans tried to resettle the islands and then Japanese settlers came in and so on. So people were there on the islands. If there were people around, they should have used names. That was the idea. And we wanted to recover these names. Then people told us in the Northern Marianas that it is, of course, also of cultural and historical importance to know how uh, the former generations named places on islands which form part uh, uh, of my home country. In a way, let's say it's a, a kind of Let's say it's, it's a kind of inflation uh, in, in the public discourse related to the use of the term cultural. So mm -hmm. uh, everything is cultural and, 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 and um, sometimes you can have doubts uh, about what, uh, uh, whether a, a, a certain phenomenon is really a symbol for uh, one's culture. But the names of my surroundings, so the, the names I have to use to get around, uh, in places that belong to my um, sphere of uh, conscience and sphere of uh, cultural awareness, uh, they are important, of course. I want to refer to these places. If there are no names around, I can't refer to these places. Mm -hmm. I can't, they, they are, uh, in, in a way, these places don't exist because I can't name them. I can't uh, put a name to them. Uh, there aren't even any English terms, so we have these uh, these American U.S. American maps of the uh, Northern Mariana Islands, including the Goni Islands. There are no English terms. There are neither Japanese terms, nor German terms, nor Spanish terms, nor English terms, nor Tamaro terms. That's interesting, of course. Then we discovered uh, relatively, we decided oh, that this is something interesting. There are places without names. It's, uh, this is, um, let's say, surprising because there are so many islands, for instance, around in the world which have never been settled by anybody, but still every <laughs> geo-object has a name of its own because people went there, just uh, uh, explorers, for instance, Explor and they made it their business to na put names to every kind of rock they've, uh, they found. So there are islands um, as large as uh, for in uh, Agriagan uh, and um, uh, with ju just as many geo-objects there and every geo-object has a name. Whereas 
the uh, the islands, uh, uh, the Gorni Islands, are lacking these names. Okay, now um, you man you mentioned that your discovery uh, was that there were place names in Pagan. Mm -hmm. did, did you get yes? Did, did yes. you get the Chamorro uh, interpretation of those place names, or only the uh, German or English? Are, oh, no, no, no. They were Japanese mostly. There was no, not a single English name. There were mixtures sometimes. So a uh, hill or something uh, was um, used um, elements from English, but um, uh, the um, the map we used uh, had a uh, a huge number of Japanese uh, place names uh, and hardly any Tamoro place names. So uh, okay. no tomorrow elements, but okay, this depends so, on the map, of course. Right, right. Now, um, what happened in, I want to say 2007, because that's when I became a research associate, I think. But John Peterson was the director of Mark at the time. And he mm -hmm. said to me one afternoon, hey, Arlene, want to go to Pagan? And I looked at him and said, of course I want to go to Pagan. Who doesn't want to go to Pagan, right? And so he said, mm -hmm. okay, so they put me on a boat and they sent me to Pagan. I was the only one that wasn't crew, took me to Pagan and I was there for three days. And my job was to try to identify people who lived in Pagan and to mm -hmm. speak to them about traditional use of the land. And at the time there were two people that lived in Pagan, they were young, but I, I interviewed uh, Santiago Castro and his friend Nathan something, I, I have to look at my notes. But anyway, they took me around in the three days and they, they told me this is this place, this is that place, because it was handed mm -hmm. down by their uncles and their grandfather and their father, etc. When I got back to Saipan, I spent a whole month in Saipan interviewing people who at one time lived in either Pagan, Alamagan, uh, Sarigan, uh, or I think it was, and um, oh, there's there are three or four that were habitable, but they were there for copra cultivation, and they mm -hmm. also they also hunted and did other things, and 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 they were putting in them on boats and sending it back to Saipan. So I sat down with Pedro Castro, and I had him draw on a on a uh, yeah. map where the place names were and i did that for my research now i had no interest really in creating much out of it i just when i'm interviewing someone and they tell me oh i was at at as lucas or i was at you know uh saban and uh, piao or whatever they're saying mm -hmm. then at least i could look at this map that castro did for me and I had a general idea where on the island they were and what they were doing. Yep. And and so if I haven't shared that with you, I don't know if I did or not. Um, I'm willing to contribute that no. to you. No, you haven't. Oh, you haven't. But but uh, I would appreciate it, of course. Yes. Um, um, because the, I think that the, the Pagan example uh, supports the idea that there must have been place names also on the other islands. There Bargain were. Especially there because were. there are already on the map, you find some names, yeah. but it's different, uh, Alamagan and so on, uh, Sagrigan, uh, you, you don't find any names except village sometimes. So there is uh, okay. a song song. 
Yeah, uh, but now, that's, that's now it. In, in one of them, I want to say Sarigan. I didn't get a map drawn for me, but I have interviews of people that were there for Copra Plantation and they spoke of specific places. But even that I can extract uh, and share with you because oh, that right. would be you're right. It, it does. Yeah, that would be a great help. People cannot go somewhere. And if there is no name for it, or if they don't know the local name for it, they will create a name for it. Because like you said, yes, they right. need to describe yeah. where they were or how they got where they were or what was where they were at. So it's just human nature. You do that all the time. Now, yeah, yeah. recently something similar, Thomas, where we have uh, names for birds in Chamorro, but we don't mm -hmm. have names for all the migratory birds. We have some names for them, mm -hmm. but not a lot of other names for them. And I don't know anybody today who is capable uh, of naming all these new migratory birds that are coming over here. And I found that in a few of the instances, it made sense. For example, the shorebirds, they call them dulili. It's a group mm -hmm. of, of shorebirds that when they are congregating in the low pools or low tide pools, and then they fledge, they make a similar sound to dulili. Dulili, lili, lili, you know, that kind of, that mm -hmm. kind of a sound. But then in other naming of other birds, it is not sound related at all. Like, for example, kalalang. I can't even, I don't even know what the word kalalang means, except in the dictionary that we got from Topping, it tells me exactly what that bird is, and it's the wimbrio. So we have a Chamorro name for the wimbrio, but we don't have Chamorro mm -hmm. names for other birds, you know, like tutuku, tutuku mm -hmm. for the Pacific reef heron. Uh, but we also have tutuku Atilung or tutuku apaka, which describes black or, or white. And so yeah. the tutuku would be the egret, but the tutuku Atilung is the Pacific reef heron dark morph. So why did it stop? Why did we stop naming things? And how do we name mm -hmm. things? And I think it's, it's part of that stall, if you will. I think the gap is too wide now for us to start naming anything in the Chamorro mm -hmm. language. Yes, yes, yes. Um, in uh, let's say in language endangerment studies and language death studies, these are disciplines of their own in linguistics. Uh, it's uh, considered a sign of um, reduced vitality of a language if it's no longer possible for uh, the people speaking it to be. Uh, terminologically creative in the language. If they don't, they, they uh, uh, let's say they um, have recourse to the uh, resources of another language to name things. That happens in, Ger in, in the modern German society at the moment. Every new concept gets an English label uh, in, in German, but it's still vital, the language. But some right. people lose the, the ability to be creative in German, so they 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 would choose an English term, even if they don't know very uh, English very well. Uh, they, they this is it sounds like the modern world if you use English. Yeah. If you use German, it's mm, it sounds like uh, the the old, the good old days in in a ways in a way. So uh, it's so not vogue. Perhaps, yeah. 
And some people don't even have this idea of modern and old-fashioned. They don't. They they uh, don't even uh, recognize that there is a problem. They're not really a problem that they are not using their uh, ethnic the, the 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 possibilities of their ethnic language. That it's it's natural for them that it has to be English to be used uh, for new concepts mm. in a way. And so it's it's perhaps a sign also that uh, Tamoro has lost some of its vitality um, because people are no longer uh, sticking Creative. to Tamoro as a source yeah. for new vocabulary. You know, we need a vitamin, don't we? When we get old, we need vitamins. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, linguistic vitamins, yeah. Mm. What yeah. could that be? What, what could, oh. I mean, other than speaking it at home, and I get it, I, I understand mm -hmm. that, but what if the desire is not there anymore, Thomas? Oh, that's of course a psychological, a psycho, so, social psychological question I can't really answer. Uh, I know that money is something. So uh, we have one particularly successful case in, in Europe at the moment, so that's the Welsh language. It was about to die. So Welsh was giving way to English in uh, Wales, in, uh, in the United Kingdom. It has been losing uh, speakers uh, for the last 200, in the, uh, 200 years. In the 19th century, there were still a million speakers. And in the 1960s, it was down to a quarter of a million. And the younger generation didn't really care about the language and so on, although it was a... It was, was what was called a cultural language, mm -hmm. has a long tradition of uh, literary writing and so on. There's uh, academic writing in Welsh, but it was losing ground to English constantly. So uh, then um, uh, the United Kingdom became part of the uh, European Union. And all of a sudden there was money uh, to invest into regional cultures, a lot of money. And the Welshmen uh, invested it wisely. So at the moment they, uh, they have reversed the, um, the process. So uh, there is now a tendency uh, uh, towards a, a moderate growth of this uh, uh, native speaker community. And this has to do with... Um, investing money in schools, for instance, yes. a lot of money has been invested in monolingual or bilingual Welsh-English schools. And the uh, Welsh-speaking schools, uh, schools uh, receive More better um, uh, gear, in a way, and the better trained teachers. So it's also attractive for local English speakers to send their children there because they get the better ed education there. Yeah. So they learn the, uh, uh, then Welsh, of course, as a second language anyway, but this, um, in a way, the, the, the domain of the use of Welsh has grown. And there are then, um, as a kind of additional secondary measure, measures, the local government uh, uh, has uh, taken care to make it possible for everybody to use uh, Welsh for public uh, and administrative uh, purposes. Got so it. there are forms in Welsh. You can do your tax uh, 
uh, taxes in, in Welsh. Uh, everywhere there has to be a Welsh-speaking official in the administrative offices. The police is partly Welsh-speaking and so on. Uh, and that was possible because of the money that came in. Without the money, the language would have been uh, would have gone on uh, to lose speakers and uh, uh, decreasing in size uh, as to the speech community. But then there was there were millions of euros, and there was also this kind of regionalization. The United Kingdom uh, gave uh, the Welsh part of the uh, of the Wales uh, a parliament of uh, uh, their own. And uh, of course, this helped. It's, it's not really enough to have a parliament of your own that wouldn't save the language. People must have this kind of feeling or solidarity Desire. with the language. If, if you can have all kinds of political uh, measures, advantages even for you, if you don't want to learn it, uh, or want to uh, don't want to pass it on to the next generation. The language has lost uh, uh, the competition. That, that's uh, clear, uh, right. clearly the case in Ireland, for instance. Uh, mm -hmm. No new native speakers have been created. A lot of second language speakers who never use the language uh, uh, except on a particular day, St. Patrick's Day, then, perhaps, right. uh, like right. you told me, the tomorrow day. Yeah, a native Rolling. culture day or something like this. And yeah. then, then it becomes a kind of museum language in a way. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's used to special occasions, creating identity. But you need your identity all, all day long, 24-7 in a way. So why not use the language uh, every day and not only on a special occasion? Um, first of all, you need the parents who uh, are willing to teach the language immediately to the newborn children. And then, of course, you need the money uh, to prepare the educational system uh, for monolingual uh, Tamoro-speaking children. Uh, they shouldn't have any disadvantages uh, being monolingual-speaking uh, uh, Tamoros. And there must be a kind of uh, strand in the educational system that uh, facilitates um, being educated uh, predominantly in Chamorro, not just without English, that's illusionary, uh, to just drop English completely, right. uh, but to have the possibility to do at least 50% of your uh, uh, education from uh, your first year to uh, uh, the final year in tomorrow, and not just an hour every week. So that's that's, right. that's also symbolic right. only. I think that the, the effort initially was just to stave off criticism, but anytime you do something, if you're not doing it on a regular basis, you're not going to be good at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you, you can also create regulations like you, you can enter university here only if you pass a tomorrow exam. That's you right. can become a public employee right. only if you pass a tomorrow exam. Now, that makes it attractive. Yeah, exactly. You, you enforce it. You have to enforce it then. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not uh, arguing for this kind of, of restrictive policy, a policy. But if you really want it, you uh, the, uh, you shouldn't shy away 
from measures that are uh, a, a little bit rigid um, uh, in a way because they impose something on uh, other people who perhaps do not belong to the speech community. So you exactly. have to regulate it. It's a multi-ethnic uh, community, right. a multilingual community. You have to negotiate uh, these uh, regulations with the people who, who are not part of the Tomorrow community, of course. Right, so that's, right. I, I think that's the, the most difficult part then, uh, politically speaking. It would be, and actually there was resistance to that. I remember I yeah, asked a while back. I can back, imagine that, yeah. Yeah, I asked a while back, I said, why are you, why do schools offer French, Japanese, and I think it's German? Why are they offering yeah. those three as a foreign language instead of including tomorrow and make it a fourth option? And um, and then there were the non-speaking tomorrows who who argue, well, why do the, why do we have to learn to speak tomorrow anyway? And I said, well, when you're in Rome, mm -hmm. you you you're going to speak Roman. When you're in Japan, you're going to you don't even think about it. It's not even you. You don't even criticize it. When you're in, in Fiji, you want to speak Fijian. When you go to, to Australia, you start sounding like them when you go to the... So why is it such a struggle when you're in Guam to speak tomorrow? Yeah, I, I, I understand. <laughs> it, it is so frustrating. It's like you're in Guam. I get it. This is a U.S. territory. I understand that. But do you have not any respect for the local people? Do you mm -hmm. not have any any desire to learn anything from them? Do you think that there's nothing to learn from them? How can you enrich yourself, if you will? You know, how can you be that yeah. naive to think you can't learn and enjoy the food, the, the company, the culture? I mean, you don't have to sing, you don't have to, to speak our language, but enjoy the people, you know, in exchange with them. But even the half a day, they say half a day. No, it isn't half a day. It's half a day. <laughs> it just, it's so insulting sometimes. And even when you don't want to make it an issue, it becomes an issue because of those kind of attitudes. So, mm. you know, I, I, I sometimes catch myself because I'm thinking, wow, you know, when I, when I go to, to Japan, the first thing I hear when I get off the plane, right, is a Japanese greeting and I say it right back. It, I don't make mm -hmm. a conscious, I don't make a conscious effort to resist it. So when someone's here on Guam and a newbie comes and they say, Oh, what is half a day? Are you saying half a day? And I said, No, I'm not saying half a day. I say half a day. I address everyone like that, including you on my email. Half a day, Thomas, yes, how are you doing? <laughs> right? Yeah, I will reciprocate it in the, in the future. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, it's just, you know, I, it's, it's a simple greeting. It's my way. Mm -hmm. If I want to get your attention, I go, hoy, <laughs> you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's just how we do things, but it's not an insult. And to, no, to, to take it insulting yeah. is really an attitude, I think. So anyway, mm -hmm. I, I want to, I want to applaud your work. Please continue. I look forward to that dictionary. I, I just wanted to add something because we have a, a, a new project idea I, I wanted to uh, mention. Um, we have uh, old documents from the Spanish period, uh, bilingual texts, Tamoro uh, uh, Spanish, 
from the 19th century. Uh, and I've uh, suggested to uh, people at the mark that we could do some kind of um, joint uh, edition of uh, these and other texts. Uh, we, we, we just have a few, and I know uh, that um, Carlos Madrid has, uh, uh, is, is working on uh, very old uh, uh, um, uh, Tamoro documents, even from the late 18th century. So perhaps uh, uh, we can uh, conduct a, a joint project, Bremen Guam, or Guam Bremen, uh, the order is uh, negotiable <laughs> in a way to edit these old texts because I, uh, I, I know that um, uh, people are interested in the past uh, of their uh, community and even if the texts have been, let's say, uh, seen the light of day in the times of colonialism, they're still interesting uh, to the people. Yes, um, uh, and perhaps in uh, the context of this new project, uh, uh, we will come to uh, go again to the Marianas in a, in a year from now uh, for uh, uh, an extended period, let's say four weeks. That's extended already because I can't leave my teaching obligations here at the oh, university yeah. for a long time. So, yeah. And then perhaps we uh, can meet again and uh, I can report on uh, um, uh, the progress we have been, hopefully have been making in the meantime. Whether it's a new project or not, I, I welcome any continuing dialogue with you and I'm always grateful to hear from you and thank you for always being willing to share uh, what you know or, or learn about language and our, our language specifically. Uh, it's, always, yeah, uh, yes. it's always very encouraging to talk to you, Thomas. I really appreciate it. Yes, I like the interview and also the, the interview in the past. Uh, I, I also want to uh, continue our dialogue and I, I think it's my obligation uh, as a linguist to share my uh, my ideas and sometimes also results, if there are any, uh, with the general public. Especially uh, if I have done research on tomorrow, it's, um, let's say, uh, the tomorrow people are entitled to know about what Absolutely. I uh, say about their language. Absolutely. I really like that position because I think no. the dialogue, respectful dialogue and explanation is always better for unity, for understanding each other. And hopefully yes. one hopefully one day that will be more more common than not. Yeah, okay. Uh, I, uh, I'm confident that it will happen sometime, uh, uh, probably not during my life, but after that. <laughs> Yeah. That's optimistic. <laughs> okay. Yes, it's well, optimistic. Yeah, that's optimistic. And we have to be all optimistic. And I, I mean, there's been a lot in my journalistic career that I've seen open up. And it's just a matter of time. So I agree. But thank yes. you again very much. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Professor Thomas Stoltz from Bremen University in Germany. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much. The ple pleasure is mine as well. Yeah, Bye. Okay. This, this is Arlene Live. Adios, everybody. You've been listening to Arlene Live on the KUAM Podcast Network. Join her next podcast for an all-new edition. 
You can catch Arlene live anytime at any of your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, and Google Podcast, and at Micronesia Publishing on YouTube. We welcome your feedback and suggestions. Email Arlene at arlene at arlenelive.com. Thanks for listening.